You're welcome along to episode 35 of Blurini Bailidish, the podcast from the National Folklore Collection at University College Dublin. In this episode, we're going to explore a particularly bitter phase of Irish history, that of the Irish Civil War, which was fought from the 28th of June 1922 until the 24th of May 1923. According to historian Anne Dolan, the memory of the Irish Civil War has been assumed, distorted and misunderstood. It has been manipulated, underestimated, but most of all, ignored. This period of conflict followed on from the War of Independence and accompanied the establishment of the Irish Free State, a state independent from the United Kingdom but which remained within the British Empire. The Civil War was waged between two opposing groups, the pro-treaty Provisional Government and the anti-treaty Irish Republican Army, or IRA. The treaty over which they split was the Anglo-Irish Treaty, agreed upon to end the 1919-1921 War of Independence, waged between Ireland and Great Britain. However, rather than creating the independent republic for which nationalists had fought, under the treaty the Irish Free State became an autonomous dominion of the British Empire, with the British monarch as the head of state, in similarity to Canada and Australia. The treaty also stipulated that members of the new Erechthus, the Irish Parliament, had to take an oath of allegiance to the British Crown, which was anathema to many Irish Republicans. Furthermore, the partition of Ireland, which had already been decided by the Westminster Parliament and the Government of Ireland Act of 1920, was effectively confirmed in the Anglo-Irish Treaty. Michael Collins, the Republican leader who had led the Irish negotiating team, argued that the treaty gave, quote, not the ultimate freedom that all nations aspire and develop, but the freedom to achieve freedom. The fort, he also said about the treaty that he had signed his death warrant as well. The forces of the provisional government supported the treaty, while the anti-treaty opposition saw it as an enormous betrayal. Many of those who fought on both sides in the Civil War had fought together during the War of Independence. The Civil War, while won by the pro-treaty Free State forces, left Irish society divided and deeply embittered for generations. And today, the two main political parties in the Republic of Ireland, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, are direct descendants of the opposing sides of that war. Now, a hundred years on, in marking the centenary of this period, the Civil War Memory Project is currently underway, a collaboration between ourselves, i.e. the National Folklore Collection at University College Dublin, and Scratch Films to document and preserve oral testimonies, reminiscences and accounts concerning the Civil War. And to take me through the project and to discuss this phase of our history in more detail, I'm honoured to be joined by my friend and colleague here, Dr Chris Dorn-McCorrig, the Director of the National Folklore Collection. Chris, Kate Fawlton, good morning. Thanks, Johnny. It's a pleasure. Yeah. Um, so just to, to start, I suppose, there's a, fair, there's a few kind of different avenues and areas for us to explore, but mm. an out, an, a kind of at the outset, I suppose, it's worth covering just the Civil War Memory Project, the project between ourselves and Scratch Films, to give a sense of people what, what it is and what does it entail. Yes, well, what it basically entails, as you summarised, uh, is recording, documenting, reminiscences, memories, um, mostly indirect of course, there's a hundred years has passed since since it happened. Uh, it's really our last chance, I suppose, to record this type of testimony. Mm. Uh, if we wait another 50, 100 years, you know, the details will have really receded mm. um, very much so. And the, the strength of the, uh, those memories will have, will have waned and faded. And, and faded. So we were approached... Uh, by uh, RTE and Scratch Films in uh, early in 2021 with the idea of producing um, two documentaries and at the core uh, dealing with the Civil War the all the details of it um, and essentially it would be a collecting project a mm. documentary project uh, in, in which a team of um, history postgrads um, directed by myself and Connor Mulva here in UCD mm -hmm. he's a um, historian uh, and Scratch Films who have experience we have worked with Scratch Films before on previous uh, projects such as the um, in particular the Traveller History Project which mm. was very successful and that too involved training um people to go out and to record memories themselves so equipping everybody with the old good old zoom recorder mm -hmm. uh, giving them basic instructions on how to use it and then 
providing them with batteries, an SD card, mm. and then instructions uh, about how to preserve the recording, uh, etc. And also just the so a little about the the etiquette of recording, if you like, yeah. you know, the do's and the. Which is a black art in, in its own way. In, 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 in a way it is, yes. I mean, this is a difficult subject, as you you know outlined mm. at the start. The Civil War, there's still a lot of sensitivities and tensions, even to a certain degree, mm. about it, because it really drove a wedge between communities and even, in the case of families. So our task is really to go out. Um, we have advertised uh, we've written notes in the paper uh, we have done interviews on radio national radio uh, both in Irish and uh, in, in English this is to identify contributors to the yes, project just to alert people to it and to invite people to share their memories with us yeah uh, and the response has been I have to say very good mm. um, you know, people want to talk people want to tell the stories people are prepared to do it people in irish people have a strong historical instinct you know they 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 have a liking and a fascination for history mm. and this is now in the realm of history but the effects are still around us you mm -hmm. know we can still trace those so we we are visiting uh, places and recording people where uh, significant incidents happened mm -hmm. um uh, monster of course you know was was really the the scene for a lot of it and dublin of course with the, the four courts but in the later stages of the civil war much of it was confined to to monster so a lot of recording is going on there but there's recording in dublin um the inner city mm. liz gillis has been uh, mm. doing huge amount of uh, uh, background research and uh, arranging interviews with, with people, relevant people. So we're really pleased with the number of people who've come forward yeah. offering to, to talk to us. Mm. And bearing in mind those sensitivities mm -hmm. uh, and the fact that even today there is, you know, trauma, yeah. you know, from that period. Yeah, yeah. So uh, tomorrow I'm going down to Kerry and uh, we'll be uh, interviewing people in relation to the Countess Bridge incident in Killarney that happened on the same day as the Ballycidi uh, atrocity. Because the thing about the Civil War as well, even to frame it for people who might not be familiar, when you go through some of the accounts, it's the, the degree of the brutality, I suppose, that was the kind of floodgates opened in many ways in local communities between people who had fought on the same side in the War of Independence and fought lines split down families, but who did horrible things to each other, I suppose, with the degree of violence and that was met out to people. Yeah. And I don't think that's that's necessarily... I, I wasn't quite aware, I suppose, of the, the detail and depth of that. It, it got particularly nasty and there were some very vicious incidents. And, you know, um, there were reprisals, there were counter-reprisals. Mm. So there were atrocities committed on both sides, assassinations... But in the case of Ballycidi, uh, this is where the National Army, the Free State Army, it wasn't known as the Free State Army, of course, at the time, the, uh, the treaty forces, uh, in retaliation for um, previous uh, attacks and assassinations by the local Kerry Brigade in, in North Kerry, uh, they took a number of prisoners, six or seven prisoners, out to Ballycidi, tie them and tie them all to a mine, put a mine in the middle of them and then walked away. Um, there was one survivor, Stephen Fuller, who was miraculously thrown over a ditch by the force of the blast, uh, but all the other men were killed outright. Mm. And on the same day in at Countess Bridge, uh, three IRA men were uh, killed, mm -hmm. were murdered um, by troops. And again, this was all part of this spiral of, of retaliation. Um, and bear in mind, you know, th these were former comrades, so, mm -hmm. you know, they would have known um, a lot of the hideouts and mm -hmm. so on like that. So it, it was particularly tense time. Mm -hmm. 
and anybody seen to be helping the IRA, um, particularly in, in really hot spots like Kerry, Waterford, Tipperary, Cork, you know, they they were punished mm. uh, uh, as a result as well. So it was a crazy time. Mm-hmm. And uh, even down to individual families, mm. you know, being divided. On that topic so of, of families, I want to play a piece of audio from the from our, our sound archive here. And this was collected from a Commandant Horgan, who was a native of Cork, and Seamus McPhil- McPhillip, the late Seamus McPhillip. This was a, an, an interview that was conducted in May 1980 with a Commandant Horgan, and he's, he, he, his material is fantastic about, he talks about the Easter Rising and the War of Independence, and now he's talking about his experience during the, the Civil War. Um, but he talks about how, again, a common theme that you find is this fault line splitting through a family. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this piece he describes how he and his brother were on opposite sides of the treaty and how his mother used to keep them separate when they then visit the family home so we'll just listen to this for a second I held one thing Ned held the other and my mother God rest her uh, used to try and if I came first as I think I told you before if I came first I went into the kitchen and if Ned came First, he went into the kitchen, but if I came second or he came second, we went into the parlour, which was the just two rooms in, a, in an old-fashioned house that we lived in on the Glashian Road, you know. Mm. But there was no there was no bitterness, no nothing. So, yeah, you'd, you'd often meet in the house when you were actually in the National Army and when he was in the Irregulars. You'd often no, I would never meet him. My mother would ensure that if I were first, right. I would be in the kitchen. And if he were first, he would be in the kitchen. And when I arrived then, and if I couldn't get into the kitchen, I knew Ned was in the kitchen. Mm. But, uh, um, and that was the way it was. And this is my, my unfortunate mother who had to kind of keep the dividing line and mm. look after both of us at the same mm. time. Because we were both in problems at that time. I mean, he was liable to be shot and so was I because I was out in a free state lorry, you know. And the Civil War in Cork was very bitter very bitter in many ways um, and certainly to be a free stater was a, wasn't a very popular thing in Cork because as I think I said earlier most of the people you know older than I were than I was who really were anything went uh, Republican as we called it at that time mm. or diehard as we the common name for it but they went that way so we weren't we were, there were very few. I think in my own battalion, Peter Young, a lad by the name of Jerry O'Shea, who came from around Ballincollig, um, Luke O'Brien, they were all in the area that I lived in, on near the Glashing Road. There weren't more than a dozen of us altogether who, were, who joined the Free State Army. So you can see in that sense just that, you know, his mother is having to shepherd them in that way, that, that it's, it's kind of coming through the family. And that's something that you find again and again and again. Um, so I suppose there's still, there's still a good deal of those kind of fault lines run through communities and families, but they haven't really been talked about necessarily either, which is... Yeah, there's been a silence in, in many respects because it was very difficult for people to talk about. Um, and... It, Horgan's account there, very intelligent man and a uh, very honest uh, account and all credit to Seamus MacPhillip, it's a superb interview and he did carried out a lot of very good interviews as part of that then urban folklore project from here, from UCD in 79 and 1980, uh, a lot of interviews about the revolutionary years but Horgan really highlights the very difficult predicament that women in particular were, were cast into um, having to manage and, and you know where, where loyalties are divided um, uh, we have other recordings of similar situations where, where again women um, having to um, protect, to hide mm. um, and to make excuses for and to be subject to a, a certain amount of brutality themselves were, were a lot of the local men in the IRA, were there many people in the IRA? You wouldn't know who was in at that time because we had to, in here, hide in one time, we had to, I remember a brother of mine was in the army at the time and when they came in to escape the 
I think it was their own the free state army oh yeah and they came in to escape then because they were after them and he's caught and then he passed out when they saw his coat and when they said it's all right she says you needn't be worried over that and they stopped here and they gave them a meal and they cleared out across the hill after the, they were chased too they were after them too the civil war the civil war so you know th there was nothing heroic uh, at all about you know what happened uh, in, in the civil war and i think mm -hmm. horgan really sums that up very very well mm -hmm. and sadly he never got to see ned again well they never they, they, they never met never mm -hmm. spoke and so many people who were on effectively the losing side there and at one point there would have been up to an estimated 15,000 fighters on the um, Republican side, the anti-treaty side. Uh, great numbers of them went abroad because they couldn't find work uh, uh, as a result after the, the Civil War ended. So to say the rest of the Civil War then was fairly quiet for you, was it? Uh, yeah. the war uh, yes. Mm. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes, well, let me just say if you had a job to go to and you could go and... Uh, you could, uh, yeah. I mean to say, content your mind, you know, of course, and come home, of course. No, it was all over, it was all finished. Yeah. Did, had you a job at that time? Uh, no. Mm. No, no, I had no job. I had no job. I, the one that I had in the electric light in Fleet Street, of course, I mean to say, I lost that. I lost that uh, during the, uh, uh, after the Civil War was over. Mm. I lost that. I was working there, of course, I mean to say, and uh, they... Uh, they, uh, what really happened was, of course, I mean to say that they happened to know, you see, of course, that I was out against them, you see, certain people in the job, you see, whenever it came to a knockoff, you see, which of course I mean to say that I should have, uh, I should have, I, I should have objected to, because we were put there, we were, after the tan ward, you see, never to be sacked when there was, there, when there was work there. And of course, if you had a different opinion with some people that was working at the job, you see, Right, you were gone. So that's what happened to me. I was gone because they knew, you see, of course, that I fought against the, on the Republican side, I fought against the state. And I was sacked. So there was huge disruption uh, as a result of it, and that played out for, for several generations. And, and we know, of course, that it had its, you know, it very evident in the politics of Ireland, you know, where, where the... Uh, uh, Sinn Féin uh, subsequently became Fianna Fáil, um, the Republicans, and entered the Doyle in 1927. Uh, and of course the Common Ail represented the, the National Army, the, the treaty forces. So there's a legacy there, there's a political legacy, which is kind of receding uh, a lot of people. Um, uh, wouldn't know, wouldn't understand the origins of both parties at this point in time, but they uh, evolved out of that maelstrom of mm. horror and yeah. uh, uh, division. And it's fascinating what you're saying there about the experiences, say, of women in this context and having to hide people or having to deal with the fallout in particular families, but that kind of speaks as well to the type of record that that will be collected under this project. It's that, that sort of family reminiscences or, or very direct experiences. And that kind of speaks to something about the nature of um, of oral history, which is something maybe we should try and talk about a bit, about you know what sort of emotions are attached to memories of the Civil War, but then in the work that's being done by the collectors for this project, how, how will they be navigating these questions? Will they be looking for the facts and figures or, or what will their approach be? Yeah, and you know, to a large extent, we know the outline facts you know, of the incidents, the numbers involved, the numbers of judicial and extrajudicial executions, as they, they might be put. Um, what we are really concerned about is, to some degree, the emotion, the, you know, the, 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 the personal uh, human uh, impact of, you know, these, these, this awful bitterness. Uh, and to you know to put that on record and that survives down to the present my hope for instance is on thursday we will be interviewing people around the bally cd uh, uh, incident and stephen fuller's son uh, Audie Fuller, that. is still alive and we we're hopeful that he's 
uh, he has been willing to talk about these incidents in the past so we would hope that he could do so again um, but it's very very interesting uh, again to talk to the people who are on the ground and you know those traditions that have been passed down through families about about what happened uh, they're more elusive you know those type of memories and those type of details to capture mm. on the straight facts and do you think then that there's the kind of the, the formal historians attitudes to oral history as a source of evidence has that that's softened over the years or because that's been the lifeblood of what we've done since time immemorial essentially as a tradition archive but there have been different views in the, in, in the, the world of formal historians in their approach to oral history which haven't always been entirely favorable but that's not quite the case anymore it's, is it? yeah uh, happily that's changed johnny uh, significantly uh, uh, in recent years and there was at one point uh, uh, a certain reluctance on the part of historians to accept oral testimony uh, or oral histories as you know tangible evidence as documentary evidence they wouldn't have placed it on a par with uh, you know official records and uh, contemporary written reports of events um, yet if we bear in mind that uh, ultimately uh, a record is created by speaking to somebody by recording details that are transmitted orally mm. Uh, however long the gap is between the actual event and the taking of the record. So uh, you, you cannot dismiss oral, oral history uh, by any means. And, you know, those who have who are directly involved in, in incidents are whose parents and uh, uh, relations might have been directly involved. You know, there's a lot of incidents, there's a lot of detail about incidents that can be preserved you know within families and so on that hasn't been committed to paper mm. very often so historians for many years have been and especially around the revolutionary years have been talking to and recording um former revolutionaries uh, so th there's nothing new in that um but it has now come very much into the mainstream of of history itself and we, we distinguish between oral history and oral tradition in, in, in folklore terms. Oral tradition is, I suppose, uh, accounts of events recorded long after the event um, are that have been received uh, uh, through maybe more than one person. You know, the, if you like, the chain of transmission of the narrative concerning that event has passed through a number of mm. intermediaries. Um, nonetheless, the thrust uh, uh, of that uh, memory is often very, very strong and is at the heart of the account that is passed on. So while certain details may become a little hazy mm. over time, um, a little uncertain, the, the main thrust uh, and significance, the meaning, meaning of what exactly, happened yeah. really is the key thing. Yeah, how is it understood? And how what does it mean it? for people? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. There's something I want to read here. This is um this is a, a piece from Guy Biner from his Remembering the Year of the French Irish Folk History and Social Memory. And it just speaks to what you're describing there. Um I just want to go through this 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 kind of d description of oral history essentially. Since folklore is by and large gathered through oral interviews, it follows that historical study of folklore sources require an understanding of oral history. Though Ireland is renowned for its vibrant oral culture, surprisingly, the field of oral history has not been at the core of at the fore of Irish historical studies. A preliminary report on oral archives in Ireland, compiled in 1997, concluded that although certain positive trends are, are in evidence, there still seems to be a reluctance to view oral archival material as essential and valuable source material. To an extent, orality is an intrinsic, though often unacknowledged, feature of most historical sources, which generally describe events in the past that were witnessed most likely discussed and only then documented. Therefore, textual archival sources are almost invariably, invariably products of primary oral verbalization. Historians and chroniclers from antiquity to early modern times willingly used oral sources. The professionalization of the discipline of history in the 19th century, and in particular the influential school of historicism, promoted by the adherents of the German historian Leopold von Ranke, 
confined the scholarly study of history to written documents found in archives and excluded oral evidence which was delegitimized and deemed untrustworthy. One of the not noticeable historiographical developments in the second half of the 20th century has been the emergence of oral history as a distinct field. It has taken root all over the world and received recognition throughout the humanities and social sciences, although some prominent historians remain obstinate in expressing their disapproval. Oral history studies distinguish between two main categories of sources, oral history proper, defined as recollections of contemporary events, and oral tradition, referring to knowledge from the past that was transmitted orally over several generations and is generally considered the collective property of a community. The academic study of each of these fields has developed separately. So it kind of, I suppose it speaks to what you're describing there, and the distinct, the, the, the kind of, I suppose the approach of these two different fields and in the for the folklore commission O'Sullivan in his kind of outlining of the, the different branches of, of folk tradition um, he had historical tradition was one of the, the kind of the, the branches that we see here where it's the popular conceptions of major historical events or how they were experienced locally um, and I suppose that's the aim that projects like this are trying to document the personal reflections emotions reminiscences Aside from the kind of the, the verifiable kind of hard facts and figures, but there's also there's a separate a human element that we're interested in as folklorists and trying to document what these events meant for people and what the narratives around them, what what meaning are they imbued with, I suppose, and and in something so traumatic as the Civil War, you have to wonder where that trauma goes and how is it narrated privately? How is it is it forgotten publicly? Is it then, but then certain narratives are kind of privately transmitted through a family. Where does this trauma go? Where do these questions go? Um, so it's, it's, a, it's, I suppose there's a huge silence in many ways around the Civil War, but there's still a huge degree of maybe unspoken or slightly unresolved issues beneath the surface that now with the passage of time, people are maybe a little bit more willing to talk about, whereas they wouldn't have been in the 30s, 40s, 50s necessarily, where they were too, it was too close to the bone. Um, so, but yeah, I, th I just think it's an interesting, it's an interesting dynamic to see the, the formal historical record be combined, I suppose, with these other reflections and reminiscences, essentially. But that idea of, um, of not quite commemoration, but, but remembering, you know, this idea of the kind of the, 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 the pain or controversies attached to these original events and, and they're becoming hazier. What, what do we forget and what do we remember and how do we forget and how do we remember? In that context, and thinking a bit of what Anne Dolan had mentioned in an article that you showed me, which I was amazed by, about at a national level as opposed to a local one, the, the quote-unquote kind of commemoration or marking the civil wars, the cenotaph, the, the, this, this structure um, near the, the, the Erechus, the parliament here in, in Dublin. But I had never known what this was. It's a kind of large pillar, basically, standing behind, but it's gated away. Yeah, it's it's one of those curious things. It's only it was the only formal um, uh, commemorative mm. uh, uh, monument erected in memory of that period um, um, uh, and the deaths, and you know it covers, you know, the War of Independence individuals who fought both the War of Independence and a number of those who fought in the Civil War, uh, and and this was erected. Um, within a decade or so of the establishment of the free state. So, uh, for instance, there was, there was no, the, the wonderful uh, park, uh, the commemorative park in, uh, in Chicor, in Kilmainham, uh, you know, that was intended to reflect the, the First World War and War of Independence. But that cenotaph that was built, you know, was largely ignored and, um, and it's not visible, it's surrounded by a fence. So, you know, mm. it, it was a very curious place because it's, it's put in a public place, but it wasn't a public place because the general public had no access to it. Mm. So it, it, it acknowledged some awful events and so on and that, but in, in a very muted, in a strange, attenuated strange way. way yeah. I, yes. never, I only knew, literally, I only found out you know, last week when he sent me this article, oh, that's what that is. I've seen that since I was a child. But I've never known what it was for or what, because yeah. you can't approach it, you can't go near yeah. it. But so it's a weird kind of, it's it's right there in the centre of, in in the public kind of square in a way. But it's also not. It's a strangely mm -hmm. kind of removed, and that, in a way, I suppose there's a lot about the civil war that kind of 
that is like that, where it's 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 there on the surface, but it's also it's kind of not spoken or it's not really. Yeah, I mean, it, the the civil war, as as I see it, Johnny, you know, was uh, an outcome nobody wanted, mm. and a, a very messy end to what might otherwise have seemed a, a heroic campaign, uh, a struggle for for independence, uh, and then you know partition and the impact of partition and the sense among nationalists in the north that they were abandoned mm. effectively by the south even though the british government very clearly said you know this is it you take it or leave it and uh, a great deal of uh, anti-treaty um, uh, people were unhappy about the oath of allegiance yeah. that was the real key rather than partition uh, mm. at such day there was a certain uh, recognition that that was perhaps inevitable mm -hmm. so there was a lot of very very difficult and unresolved uh, issues and problems arose out of the civil war and i think the new state had to you know get on with it get on with r running a country you can understand it from their point of view that there was an urgency about that and in general life people had to return to some level of normality mm. um, but that of course has its uh, price to pay because uh, an awful lot of people who went through that the war of independence but especially the civil war and, and the brutality uh, uh, and bitterness a lot of people suffered a lot of mental health problems as a result and and huge numbers as i said before left the country in that period as well in the 1920s and 30s mm -hmm. um, i want to play a piece it kind of speaks to that again <clears throat> the difficulty of the former friends having to shoot each other raid each other's houses and so on and this this recording uh, is from patrick galvin this is, again was an interview with james mcphillip recorded in January of 1980 for, for the Urban Folklore Project um, and it's described for kind of lads who were you know quote-unquote great great friends during the town war um, they just had to t had to make a choice and this is the kind of this and live with the fallout from it essentially it must have been pretty hard firing on your own uh, Irishman farmer company. well you see that's the unfortunate part about it you know that's the unfortunate part about it is where you see and we all had some great comrades we had, you know, of course, they, you know, they were great boys to wear during the Tan War and uh, during 1916, mm. during the Rising. All great boys to wear and it was a very, it was really a very unfortunate mm. piece of business altogether, you know, that such a thing should have ever happened. But those things, uh, those things happen to do and you can do nothing about it, you know. Do you see, we've all got, let me just say, a certain principle, do you see? And of course, that's that. And I want to play just philosophical. Like, yeah, well, I kind of in a way, you kind of wonder like, where does this trauma go? You know, where does it go yeah. when everything recedes and, and kind of goes back, and everyone has to then kind of get along. Literally, well, it doesn't does it disappear, no. uh, you know, uh, out of magic. Uh, so, a, a lot of people must have internalized those problems and just vowed, "I will not speak of this again." You know, you have to. In order to survive, you must repress and push things to the background. And that takes a great psychological toll. And, you know, repeatedly you hear stories of, you know, the failure of that generation, you know, to talk openly and freely about uh, of what they experienced. Um, so, so, you know, there's a number of sides to, difficult sides to this, uh, you know, getting at the history um, now, fortunately, there were people like Ernie O'Malley, uh, uh, we have to mention his name, who went in the 40s and recorded. He, he realised the, the, the military history was recording a lot of vets, but not a lot of those uh, Republicans were coming forward to, to, to be, to be to interviewed. Talk. So uh, Ernie O'Malley recorded several hundred, which is just a phenomenal piece of work, and these are gradually being... Uh, published the material, all, all of his um, notes and his um, interviews, his transcripts are in the UCD archives here at the moment and they're gradually being published, mm. which is a great, great thing. Mm. Uh, so to, to some degree, um, 
a lot of writers, a lot of historical writers have written about the War of Independence and then, you know, once the treaty is signed, that's it. End of the episode. Uh, Roll credits. Yes, and and found it difficult to find information about the Civil War, but perhaps, too, a certain reluctance on the part of um, historians, and especially local historians often, uh, you know, to address issues, mm. to unearth uh, difficult stories about, about the Civil War. And now that, I have to say, has changed dramatically. In the decade of commemorations, um, that has a lot more information about what has happened in, in, in Kerry, in Cork, in Waterford, in Mayo, um, in Donegal, the Drumbo uh, 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 incident, and so on. People are writing about those now. It's funny because <clears throat> does it take a hundred years for us to exhume these kind of bodies from within ourselves? You know what I mean? Does it take that passage of time before a community can start to talk about, you know, like even the famine questionnaire that was recorded here, where it's people maybe whose grandparents experienced that? but that it takes that passage of time before it can enter into a more public kind of discourse and even in the context of tradition maybe that before then it has to be like you're saying quite repressed for people to just get on with their lives and get on with the practicalities of yeah. life as are presented to them in the day yeah i mean how do you integrate such awful uh, events and you know such personal uh, uh, divisions and and uh, uh, rows uh, you know, you're talking generations mm. there. So, you know, w we're now into the stage where, you know, there's third and fourth generations that have grown up after the event and, you know, have not had to go through that process of internalising and, you know, mm. integrating, you know, the, the, the awfulness uh, uh, of the period and are therefore able to stand back and, and to look at it in a, in a frank um, slightly disinterested kind of way. Slightly disinterested. In a way, way. I wonder, you know, ha have we integrated it or have we, by which I mean younger generations, forgotten it? You know, we're just ignorant of it. So that, that initial repression actually served its function and now there's a kind of a fog. For, for Except that projects like this then now bring that out of the fog and into the yeah. light and, and give it a shape and a boundary. But it's as though in many ways that there is a kind of collective disremembering that occurs as well around these items for generations that come after who don't really know about the significance of of what their great grandparents went through or grandparents and so on what was experienced but that's something as well like how how will that for the collectors who have been trained for this project how are they going to navigate that sort of landscape in, in the collecting process well we, we talked about it among ourselves and you know we've we all came to the conclusion as I mentioned earlier, you know, the, uh, a lot of the facts are, are, are straightforward. Um, and so it's the stories behind the stories, the subtext of, you know, the event is what we're interested in. And, you know, how people f frame the narrative of those events. You know, what are their reference points? Mm. And historically, uh, and there are, there are local, you know, community uh, uh, implications in all of this because not just families but individual communities um, were, were, were divided as a result of this mm. you know uh, neighbours um, you know having to to shoot at or you know to arrest other neighbours mm -hmm. and so on so it's hugely personal and the, that trauma um, that arises out of it is the thing that I suppose caused that gap in time, that silence that led to that silence. Very difficult to talk about these things. You were saying too that you met a man who was supposed to have been on the patrol that Collins was on. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I can't think of his name though. But he lives up near uh, on the embankment opposite the, uh, what do you call that place? The embankment. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, right. The embankment, yeah. they call it. Mm. And uh, is it long since you met him? Maybe about ten years, it's a... He used to walk around here, mm. painting the signpost for County Council and that, walking on the paths and that. And he had his own opinion of what happened Collins? Yeah, yeah. What was the... <laughs> well, I wouldn't like to say... 
I wouldn't like to say that, you know, have it recorded that what he thought about it because it had to be fair with it too. The family of the person mm. he, he thought was involved. Yes. Mm. 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 Could be dangerous. So, the, the collectors, this particular generation of collectors, their role is, is really to listen, to prompt and to listen but not to not to press you know to be prepared to ask some of the hard questions but to be prepared to listen what are people able even now um to, to share? share you know mm-hmm. are, is it still difficult for people to share about that are there uh, uh, personal details and family details that were not generally known you know and to get some measure of that uh, uh, the enormous impact on individual families mm. uh, and and communities mm. uh, uh, as well. So it's like the collectors will have uh, uh, been asked to sprout antennae mm-hmm. <laughs> on their heads and to listen and to watch for. So not to push or to ask to be too prescriptive about their questions, but to be prepared to listen and. Um, without prejudice to what mm. people are saying. Mm-hmm. Mm. So they are bear witnessing to a generation that are prepared to talk about these events. Mm. Mm. And they're putting it on record and the record will go in here into UCD and will be available for the use of um, uh, researchers and scholars for years to come. And indeed families and people uh, connected to these accounts. And in a way as well, in the context of collections like this, sometimes people are more willing to talk to a randomer, as it were, a stranger, than they would their own sons or daughters or grandkids who might ask them about, well, what happened here exactly? That it's harder to to sometimes narrate these accounts and to kind of go through them and to disclose them. But to somebody who who is outside of that context, it can be easier to talk to a person like that about difficult experiences that absolutely and a very good example of that uh, is um, last week we interviewed here myself and Connor Mulva and um, Morris Sweeney uh, the director for Scratch Films we interviewed a man called Harlan Strauss Uh, Harlan Strauss is very interesting he was uh, an actor uh, uh, in America but also uh, started out as an academic and he studied history, political science at the University of Oregon in the uh, late 60s, early 70s. And he completed a PhD on the subject of revolutions. And the, uh, for his dissertation, he explored among them the French Revolution, the, the Russian Revolution, but also the Irish Revolution. And he came to Dublin in 1972 and again in 1973. And he succeeded in recording um, a surprising number, more than uh, uh, almost two dozen mm. people directly involved or indirectly involved, but mostly directly involved, who were still alive, who, uh, uh, and we're talking about General Sean McOwen, um, we're talking like others about uh, the uh, McEntee, Sean McEntee, Sean McBride, mm. Maura Comerford, who oh, was. Yeah, yeah who was recorded as part of the Urban Folklore Project yeah, shortly after. A wonderful uh, narrator who was very good friends with the Connolly family, James Connolly. So yeah, he was very fortunate, Harlan. He had no, as they say, skin in the game. Yeah. He was American-born, Jewish background, you know, not invested, no Irish, you know, familial uh, connections whatsoever. So... All these people were prepared to talk to him. Mm. He even succeeded in uh, recording Sir Basil Brooke in Belfast. Mm. Well, so I mean, uh, he had access. He got access to people in a way that probably an Irish researcher could not have. Much managed. more convoluted to try and navigate. Yeah, and that's actually brings me to another point that I wanted to, to ask about the the civil war in the north. And the geographic spread of this project will it look to the north as well? Or it, it will. An area of focus? Uh, yes, it will. Um, uh, already, uh, a team has gone up with um, Scratch Films and Tomas Makamara, who is working on the project as, with us, uh, to uh, record about the Drumbo uh, incident. 
the we hope to get to Armagh um, once I suppose Munster is completed <laughs> once mm. the mopping up is mm. is is concluded in Munster um, and also Belfast and uh, we're very very fortunate that Chief Aiken uh, is mm. uh, willing she's a historian in her own right and uh, she's willing to talk as well to the to the uh, to the team. So we we are aiming to get as much of a a cross border and a, a you know all island, all island geographical spread mm. to to you won't get everything, but uh, as I think you said at the outset, you know this is a once in a lifetime mm-hmm. opportunity, mm-hmm. and we may not get it again. So. Mm. With this team of, of collectors um, who are operating, I should add, uh, independently, um, going out and interviewing people. They, they have all trained to a greater or lesser degree um, and are looking to their own localities. For instance, you know, Thomas O'Callaghan in, in, uh, in South Wexford, uh, a young historian, and he's looking at events there uh, that he realised, had no idea about until he started doing some research and mm. realised that there were incidents there. Um, Keane Flaherty and others uh, in Waterford are doing a lot of very, very interesting work and they're going out recording people. Scratch films are accompanying them as in, in many instances and are actually, so we're getting video as well process. as audio <coughs> recordings of the people. So that's, you know, doubly valuable. And uh, a number of those the, the, those videos will make up the documentaries that are due to be um, broadcast on RTE, um, uh, I understand, towards the end of September. Mm-hmm. And so what sort of people then are of interest to the project? I mean, can, is it somebody with a direct familial link or someone who has heard secondhand of a local account or wh- what sort of people are, are would you like to get involved in, in the sense of uh, what we'd call informants as opposed to informers which always have to stress yeah. that, that uh, what sort of people are we looking for to, to act as informants and contributors contributors to the project well we haven't been prescriptive and we've opened the door to as many uh, to as a, a broad a mix of uh, potential informants mm-hmm. Uh, as, as say, I suppose that's like a borrowing from from Sweden, from from the start. Yes, yes, and it, it's one we sometimes run into problems <laughs> with here. Uh, we we have to explain that the, um, uh, the the Swedes are very clear that it's somebody who provides information to you uh, to a, a folklore collector or, or whatever is an informant. And I suppose the distinction is that being that it's not they're not necessarily a storyteller because it's not it's 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 speaking to the scope of folk tradition yeah. insofar as. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's not just narration of, of tales and so on, yeah. but um, but yeah, it can be slightly funny one in the, in this con in the Irish context, the Irish which is context. also interesting. Again, you know, the mm. kind, of, kind of whatever you say, say nothing kind of thing. Yeah. But um, it's one of the features, incidentally, of that that the difficulty uh, that the IRA, the volunteers faced during the War of Independence, was the occasional informers. In every conflict, this happens, mm. uh, and it was also true of the. Um, the civil war, mm. so it really heightened uh, uh, matters, especially in the civil war. So we're looking for a, as much a mix. Uh, uh, it's really good to get people who are directly have a family connection to those mm. who were involved, and even people who might like whose family might have gone abroad. For example, if someone's listening to this and and they're aware that they're yes, um, yeah, some family member who who left and couldn't come back and went to England or America or something yeah. like that. And their stories can be particularly interesting because they uh, the the setting is often very traumatic. Uh, mm. You know, being separated from their Family, family life everything lo- gone everything gone uh, and they take their story with them and that story then uh, you know is 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 lost until and if somebody from a succeeding generation uh, actually encourages their parent to talk about these things mm. and 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 records it and it then that story then is not colored by you know the subsequent narrative of the Irish Free State. No, it's frozen. It's frozen at a particular time, so they're particularly valuable. A lot of local historians, too, have really done fantastic Mm, work mm -hmm. around the country, uh, rooting out material. So, you know, we're 
interviewing local historians as well. But yeah, brilliant. Yeah. So as broad a mix as possible, spread the net as widely as we can mm-hmm. and, and see what we get. And so I suppose to draw it like towards a conclusion, um, where, where can people get in touch, say, to contribute, if they want to contribute to the project, if they want to get in touch about it, where should they go or what should they do? Yes, um, they can contact us here uh, in the Folklore Collection and uh, we have an email address, bellidus at ucd.ie, B-E-A-L-O-I-D-E-A-S at ucd.ie. Um, uh, they can contact through a number of ways. They can also contact uh, Scratch Films, who are doing a lot of managing a lot of the contacts with people, because we've been phoning and um, they, they and writing to people. Twisting from, arms from twisting arms for months now, uh, but uh, history at scratchfilms.com mm-hmm. will find uh, will also. That'll get get people to write. Yeah, yeah just for any. And they can simply contact us here, um, Alba, uh, 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 our colleague. Um, mm-hmm. She's been helping mm-hmm. again manage people, so they can phone seven one six eight two one six and uh, talk to Alba. Mm-hmm. Or Poor Alba's going to get it. <laughs> or yourself. I hope you're not loading Alba with too much work here, but uh, she's she's very familiar with the with with the with the project. Um, yeah, it's 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 an incredible, the scope and, and the timing of it as well. It's an incredible project, I think, and it's really it's a fascinating one, for me certainly as an area of history that I have no, I uh, didn't have any real familiarity or understanding with, but to see. Just to see the the this the scale of the fault lines that arose out of this schismatic kind of event have just been profound, and as well even in another, it's actually it's it's a topic so big I could. Should devote a kind of talk about it for another episode on its own, which we haven't even mentioned and won't. But the whole the destruction of the four courts as the opening, the opening kind of move of the civil war, in the destruction of the public records office for the national archive, where you have kind of charred scraps of manuscripts floating down in the suburbs after this whole where anti free state, anti treaty um, troops are holed up in the four courts, and then the free state army starts firing on it and destroys its own national. So it just erases. As the free state is kind of born, the the, the 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 official ecclesiastical administrative records of the country go up in smoke. But it's partly in response to that then that the Cumberland and Gael government in the years afterwards funded a couple of archival projects, the Bureau of Military History being one of them, but also the creation of an Irish Folklore Commission, the, yeah. the tradition archive here, which is kind of a, a kind of kind of a photo negative and inverse opposite to the formal archive. But again, that's a topic for another day, I suppose. Um, but yeah, it's a fascinating project, and I suppose I'd urge anyone anyone listening who, who has family members or or other who, who who might be interested in, in kind of contributing to the project to get in touch with us, and I'll leave details, contact details in the description underneath the episode, so people can find email addresses and things like that. Um, and to conclude, I wanted to read a a letter that I thought was particularly kind of. Um, telling or kind of just touching on, on some of the topics that we discussed here um, that is in Anne Dolan's book on civil war and the politics of memory and she describes I suppose the, the kind of uh, just the, the, the difficulties and the, the scale of the tensions and distress that were that, and trauma is the word to keep coming back to that form part of this, this period now this is 47 years after the end of the Irish civil war a former free state soldier wrote to a former free state senator he wanted the army to go to Bailnablaw to honour Michael Collins, its first commander-in-chief, who was killed there. He made his plea brief and unvarnished, and somehow, then he wrote, this is the quote from his letter, Regardless of the right and wrong, the civil war is now a part of our history. The cold eye of the historian in dealing with it will record that to put down the opposition, the government were forced to execute 77 men, three times more than did the British in the previous struggle. But will any regard be paid to the human emotion to the dreadful duty imposed on the army personnel called upon to carry out these executions. At the time, I was the camp com- commandant in charge of Beggar's Bush barracks, and, and as in the other barracks, it fell to our lot to see this gruesome work carried out. It was then that I cursed the fates, the frailty of the leaders, the stupidity of men, or whatever it was that brought the country to this pitch of barbarity. It is impossible to describe the harrowing and the anguish of the soul, 
of having to see one-time comrades in arms being brought out and shot to death by a firing squad and to be aware that these men did not really know what it was all about. And then finally, to conclude um, on this topic of remembrance and forgetting and trauma and silence, I want to conclude with a poem by Pori Cullum. Um, and this poem is dedicated to, to Arthur, Arthur Griffith. Pori Cullum was a poet, he was a novelist, a dramatist, a biographer, a playwright, a children's author and a collector of folklore and was one of the leading figures of the Irish literary revival. And Arthur Griffith, to whom this poem is dedicated, was an, was an Irish writer, a newspaper editor and politician who founded the political party Sinn Féin. In the Dáil, Griffith served as Minister for Home Affairs from 1919 to 1921 and Minister for Foreign Affairs from 1921 to 1922. In September 1921, he was appointed chairman of the Irish delegation to negotiate a treaty with the British government. After months of negotiations, he and the other four delegates signed the Anglo-Irish Treaty, which created the Irish Free State, but not as a republic. This led to a split in the Dáil. After the treaty was narrowly approved by the Dáil, de Valera resigned as president and Griffith was elected in his place. The split led to the Irish Civil War and Griffith died suddenly in August 1922, two months after the outbreak of that war. Um, and the historian Dermot Ferreter considers, on, on the topic of remembrance and forgetting, he considered that although Griffith founded Sinn Féin, he was, quote, quickly airbrushed from history, from Irish history. Uh, Griffith's widow had to beg to his former colleagues for a, for a pension, saying that he had, quote, made them all. And she considered his grave plot was too modest and threatened to exhume his body she didn't attend the opening of the cenotaph that we mentioned earlier on. She refused to attend that. Um, and in 1968, only was a plaque fixed on Griffith's former Clontarf home. So again, it just speaks to the kind of the silence that descends, basically. This is Odysseus in Memory of Arthur Griffith by Pora Cullen. You had the prose of logic and of scorn and words to sledge an iron argument. And yet you could draw down the outland birds to perch beside the ravens of your thought. The dreams whereby a people challenges its dooms, its bounds. In ungrown days we knew you, in ungrown days we heard you, and we heard amongst boys and old men's voices a man's full voice. The hillsides knew you too, the deep sea knew you where you'd swim of mornings and we would call you by a kindly name, and by that name I'd speak to you and say, you were the one who knew what sacred resistance is in men that are almost broken. How from resistance used, a strength is born, a stormy, bright-eyed strength, like Homer's Iris, messenger of the gods, coming before the ships the enemy has flung the fire upon. Our own, our native strength you mustered up, but I will never say it, walking beside you or looking on you, with your strong brow and chin was like a targe, and eyes that were so kindly of us all. And sorrow comes as on that August day, with our ship cleaving through the seas for home, and that news coming sparkling through the air that you were dead and that we'd never see you, looking upon the state that you had builded. The news that came was like that weight of waters, poured on our hopes, our navies yet unbuilded, our city left inglorious on its site, our fields uncleared, and over our ancient house the ancient curse of war. And could we pray, touching the island homeland other than this, Odysseus, you who laboured so long upon the barren outer sea, Odysseus, Odysseus, you who made the plan that drove the wasters from the house and bent the bow that none could bend but you, be with us still. Your memory be the watcher in our house, your memory be the flame upon our hills. I don't know, Chris, do you have any last thoughts or reflections you want to comment before we... Yes, I, I, I think it is a... A cathartic, potentially cathartic moment for us all here in Ireland. A huge uh, uh, body of water has passed under the bridge, mm. you know, since this this event, and we have a maturity, I think, you know, and and uh, a confidence, self confidence, that we can talk about these these things now. Civil wars give rise to terrible division, and and uh, uh, you know they take a long, long time to heal. So a lot of water is thrown under the bridge. We must, you know, think of this too in the broader context of, um, of Ireland as a whole, as the island as a whole, and our relationships mm. with Britain. Um, I mean, it was a period where, you know, many countries in Europe were struggling for self-determination and finding their feet, and Ireland was no different. 
but you know what turned what started and uh, as a as a glorious and heroic struggle did in reality descend into a very messy and very painful and very sad episode that people have been reluctant to to talk about for so long so this is a good opportunity and uh, I'm, I'm delighted to have the chance to chat to you Johnny mm -hmm. about this and Same. about what we're trying to do uh, and we will invite you know the public you know to listen to the recordings that, that mm -hmm. the interviews that uh, the team is making as part of this project so um Big shout out and thanks to Scratch Films mm -hmm. who, who are tremendous yeah. um, yeah. uh, the work that they are doing and to all our um, field workers. Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much. Thanks so much Chris for your time. It's great to chat and um, I hope everyone enjoyed that and yeah, we'll catch everyone again soon. So, Grimagov, Sloan. Foil together. <laughs>